Good morning, Oak Ridge. Josiah and family are away visiting Andrew and Natasha in Lucan, Ontario, and uh, encouraging them there. And so he's asked me to fill in for him this morning. So I'm going to continue with our journey through some of the great psalms. There are many wonderful psalms. In fact, they're all great. But some of them just stand out more than the others. And this one that we're going to study this morning, the one that Melissa has already read to us, Psalm 34, I consider one of the best, one of the best psalms. In fact, I refer to it often in my personal life and in my ministry, and uh, it's a wonderful psalm. The psalms as a whole are songs about life, sacred songs, but commentaries on life, the ups and the downs of life, the good and the bad of life, the joys and the sorrows of life. They afford so much wisdom about life as it was meant to be lived. They tug at our heart, they challenge our ways, they teach us good and godly things. Many of them were written by David, the king of Israel, as is Psalm 34. In it, he speaks of several godly habits. Now, a habit is a repetitive behavior, one that by its repetition requires less intention and planning. It thereby streamlines our day. For instance, I have a breakfast habit, same breakfast every day. Why do, we, why do I do that? So I don't have to get up in the morning and ponder the question, what shall I eat this morning? Without, ment without much mental stress or hesitation, I make my toast, I put peanut butter and honey and banana slices on it, and then I eat it along with a cup of coffee to wash it down. Now if you want that recipe, I will gladly share it with you later. <laughs> So breakfast done. Now on to issues which may require more deliberate planning. Habits can be good and habits can be bad. Perhaps at the outset of this year you made a few good resolutions to get rid of some bad habits or to institute some good ones. How are you doing? The Christian life goes better when I have a number of good and godly habits repetitive behaviors that form the structure of my day. This is what David learned, and this is what he shares in this psalm. Now the psalm begins with an epigraph. It's a few words at the beginning of the psalm to explain when and where and how this psalm was written. And there's a short explanation at the beginning of Psalm 34 in some of your Bibles. It says, when David pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Now this, uh, this situation with Abimelech <clears throat> happened early <clears throat> in David's career before he became king, <clears throat> and it wasn't an honorable time for David at all. He was being chased by King Saul, who wanted to kill him, and so he ran for his life. On the way, he realized he was hungry and so he stopped at a place called Nob, where he met uh, Abimelech the priest. He proceeded to lie over and over to Abimelech, 
until the priest gave him the consecrated bread to eat, which only the priests were permitted to eat. Then he went to the Philistine city of Gath, where he sought asylum from King Achish. The king's advisors were unhappy that David, their enemy, was there, and David feared their intention, so he pretended to be insane. He scribbled on the doors of the gate, and he let his saliva run down into his beard, and so they thought he was insane, and they chased him away, and he left. Once again, it was a time in David's life when he used lies and deceit to protect himself. In Psalm 34, he exposes his own sin when he says in verses 12 and 13, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. So what we're going to do is look at a few godly habits that David learned and put into his own life to keep himself on track. The first one is found in the opening verses. It's verse 1. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Habit number one, learn to praise the Lord constantly. And the idea is this. If you love somebody, you will think about them a lot. And you will talk about them a lot. And you will praise them a lot when the opportunity rises. Now, today is the Super Bowl. For those who don't know what that is, it is the final game of the American Football League to determine who wins the championship. It's a big deal in sports. 120 million people will be watching it today. Now, I don't usually make mention of such mundane things, except for this. One of the players, the rookie quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, whose name is Brock Purdy, is an outspoken Christian. Now, I didn't know this until two weeks ago I heard him stand up and praise the Lord. In fact, two weeks ago I was rooting for the other team, the Detroit Lions. I have, I have since changed my allegiance. After his great playing won the game, they interviewed him on national television. As soon as they gave him the mic, he said, First, I want to thank Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord, for helping me today. To which I replied, Amen, brother. I googled Brock Purdy and found out he does this witnessing all the time. Now I want him to win today. Not for the sake of the San Francisco 49ers, but just so he can honor the Lord again in public. Now interestingly, this past week I found out, I found out that the opposing quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, is also a born-again Christian. But he's not so outspoken about his faith. So what we got to pray is no matter who wins, the quarterback who they interview is going to praise the Lord. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says this. Out of the overflow, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is a habit of the heart as well as of the mouth. It is about honoring God in my mind on a constant basis. If you'd been at the adult Bible class this morning, you'd have got this lesson already because Brett, Brett was sharing with us from Joshua chapter 1 
how we need to embrace the book of the law and, let, and keep it in our hearts all day long. It's about honoring God in my mind on a constant basis. Whether it's speaking or whether it's singing, I express what's in my mind. And when I do this, I am constantly remembering the most important person in the universe, and it's not me, and it's not anyone else, for, this, for that matter, it is God. I'm training my mind on what is of primary importance, and I am celebrating it. You know, one of the great problems in public health today, and one that you will not hear when you go to your doctor for mental health problems, or you go to your doctor for anxiety issues or for whatever issues come up, one of the great problems is that people focus their minds and hearts on the things that are not most important. And when you lose that sense of priority in your life, you get disturbed. I'm training my mind now on what is of primary importance, and I'm celebrating it. Some of us are guilty of not believing that God is most important, and so we don't speak of Him, let alone worship Him. The society around us has decided this very thing. We do not mention God in politics, in schools, or in any public forum. What we are doing is forgetting the most important person. How foolish is that? The Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, foolishness is different than ignorance. Foolishness is somebody who knows what he ought to do and then decides not to do it. The foolishness of man. He says there is no God. But even Christians who say they consider God most important do not think of God very much or do not speak of God in their ordinary lives. Maybe on Sunday, maybe at church, maybe in select company only, but not on a constant basis. We have never developed the habit. Now the Word of God says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoicing doesn't mean be happy or feel happy all the time. That's not what it's saying. Because rejoicing is an action word. It means choose to celebrate God. Worship, praise. It's an activity, not a feeling. When we do not practice this habit, then some other topic will fill our minds and our mouths, and we will focus on that as if it is the most important thing, be it our health, our work, our hobbies, our sports, Super Bowl, our plans for the day, what we will have for breakfast, whatever. When we do that, we displace the Lord from being at the forefront of our minds and hearts. Then this world becomes the focus. We become the focus, others become the focus, and our devotion is lost. In the church where I first met my wife many years ago in Detroit, there was a man by the name of Mr. Petke. Everyone knew Mr. Petke because he took this truth of Psalm 34 seriously. When there was something in the service that stirred his heart to praise, he said so. From the back of the room came his booming voice, praise the Lord. How long has it been since you confessed with your mouth this word of praise? Now I know about Canadians. I'm one of them. We're very polite. We don't want to offend or cause any trouble or cause a ruckus. So we remain silent. 
But when we remain silent and do not practice this praise of God, then we are tempted in mind and heart to minimize God and to make him peripheral in our lives. Now, verses 2 and 3 says this, My soul will boast in the Lord, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let us exalt his name together. So right now, Oak Ridge, I'm going to give us a chance to say what, we ought, what ought to be said, to praise the Lord together. Now the words are, praise the Lord. Can we say it together? Thank you very much. God heard that, and he was pleased. Others heard around you, and they were pleased and encouraged. But your own ears heard your confession of faith. Faith comes by hearing, and there's a feedback from your mouth to your ears. And so whenever you praise the Lord out loud, you are strengthening your own faith as well as the faith of others around you. And you're saying it to the glory of God as, as well. So this is a good and godly habit. David knew this and practiced it many days of his life. He sang praises to God, he spoke well of God, and he was blessed. Habit number one, speak of the Lord often. Habit number two is learn to call on the Lord for his help. And it's found in verse four. It says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. I called on the name of the Lord. So what did David do when he was in trouble? He looked up. He went up to God. He didn't search around for help in this world. He went to the Lord first. When I was a teenager, I worked at a Christian campground in Muskoka called Keswick. I got a ride back to Windsor and with two elderly folks at the end of the season that were going that way, and they seemed quite old and frail. Come to think of it, just about the way I look now. We came down the 400 and to the 401, and as we worked our way through Toronto, a sign for Oshawa came up, and his wife cried out in alarm, Honey, we're going the wrong way. The man was visibly shaken and trembling at the wheel, and I thought we were going to be in an accident. But he managed to pull off at the next exit, and he brought the vehicle to a stop. And he grabbed his wife's hand, and he, he, he uh, clasped her hand, and he, and he prayed, and he thanked the Lord for safety, and he prayed for peace and calm, and he asked the Lord for a good journey home. And off we went, and we arrived fine. I have never forgotten that witness. Why did all that happen? It was to teach a young 16-year-old boy to call on the name of the Lord. David says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Now, fear is not a sin. Contrary to the opinion of, of many, fear is not a sin. It's just an emotion. And it's an emotion that serves us well because it, it alerts us to danger. Fear is not the sin, but when I don't call on the Lord for his help and peace when I'm afraid, now I've developed the bad habit of not trusting the Lord. And that is where the sin comes in. It's a sin of unfaith. It's a sin of mistrust, of not calling on the Lord. Are you struggling with fear today? Call on the Lord. Commit the trouble to him. Ask for his peace 
in your heart. He will give you the courage and the peace to go on. Now the next verses in our psalm repeat this habit of calling on the Lord over and over and over through the next verses, through the various troubles of of life. Look at verse 5. It says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Yes, fear is a trouble in our lives, but shame is a troubling thing as well. Shame can be very, very disabling to the human psyche. Some failure happens in your life and you're embarrassed and ashamed and from then on, you never recover, you run and you hide from life. A lot of people live in shame. What to do about it? Look to Christ. Call on the Lord. He will bring you through. You can trade your shame for the radiance on, uh, uh, of Christ. Shame on your face, okay. Look to the Lord. He'll replace it with radiance. That's what the scriptures are saying. Verse 6, this man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. At the time, David was such a poor man, he had to beg for bread. He was running from King Saul. He was a fugitive and he was broke. Poverty is a difficult trial to face. Perhaps uh, he's referring also in this passage to a kind of spiritual poverty, but whether it's financial or whether it's spiritual, it doesn't matter. The Lord can save us out of both if we call on him. And this reference in verse 7 to the angel of the Lord is a very interesting reference because if we trace it back through the Old Testament, we will find that there was a special angel of the Lord that the Lord assigned to Israel to care for them on their wilderness journey. And it was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. It says in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, they drank from the rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ was walking with the people of Israel in the wilderness back before Jesus was ever born. He was, as the Son of God, he was with Israel. And the angel of the Lord encamps around us as well, and he delivers us. And the next verses, verse 8. Fear Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weary and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In verse 8, there's a, there's a threat, and, and there's some conflict that he needs to take refuge from. He calls on the Lord. The Lord delivers him. In verse 9 and 10, he's hungry, and he's in need. He calls on the Lord and the Lord delivers him. We need to pray for special protection for our missions team today because they're, they're going into a, a strange country and they might be taken advantage of as foreigners there and so we need to pray for divine protection for them. We ask and the Lord will grant them that protection that they need. Then find a look down and at verse 17 and 18, the last thing that he prays about 
is in, in verse uh, 17 and 18. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Sadness. What do you do when you're sad? What do you do when you're sad? It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. He comforts the brokenhearted. And so he's waiting to comfort us. Well, what do we, where do we turn? All right. We turn into ourselves. Many men, when they're sad, they go into themselves. Women might turn to their, their group of, of, of women and, and seek a, a shoulder to cry on. And uh, we, we have various ways of coping with our sadness. Some of us turn to, to alcohol. Some of us turn to drugs. And uh, there's a great epidemic of this because people are using the means of the world to comfort themselves rather than getting the comfort of God first. Not that these other things are wrong. But what needs to, be, what needs to happen is this. I've got to learn the habit of calling on the Lord first. Get sad, get God. Get sad, get God. And it needs to be a habit. As soon as I'm sad, go to the Lord. Lord, lift me up. And put a song in your mouth. Choose to sing the praises of God. Get your mind on the comfort of God. You know, we don't have time. You can look this up, all right? But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all called comforters. God the Father is a comforter. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God the Father is a comforter. And Jesus says, I will send you another comforter. The Holy Spirit. Well, when he says another comforter, he meant that he was the first one. And so we've got three comforters off the bat. As Christians, you don't have to go searching around for somebody to comfort your soul. You've got three already. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Call on the Lord when you're sad. Now that's godly habit number two. Learn to call on the Lord for, his, for help when you are in distress and you are in need or when you're hungry or when you're troubled, when you're fearful, all of these things. Habit number three, learn to fear the Lord. Habit number three, learn to fear the Lord. Look down at verse nine. It says, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Now, this idea of fearing the Lord is often misunderstood and gets a lot of bad press as a result. So we need to define it well. Fear is a God-given emotion. Its job is to alert us to danger. God gave us fear in our hearts so that we would avoid danger and, and learn how to re react to it and respond to it. Without this fear working for us, we quickly get into trouble and can easily lose our lives. So it is a protective emotion that needs to be regarded because life has dangers to be avoided. Parents of small children know this. Children lack sense to protect themselves, and so they have to be taught to fear certain dangers and to obey certain rules which keep them from danger. When my son was old enough to crawl, he started to move around the living room. We had an open fireplace, and when the fire was burning, the protective grate in front of it would get hot. When Chris would reach out his hand to touch it, I would tell him no, and I would scold him and Sometimes I gently slap his, his palm to give him the idea, causing him to cry. What a tough dad I was. One day he got close, 
And I saw him from across the room. He got close to the grate. He looked around, looked back at me as if to say, I know what you want me to do, but right now I want to disobey. So he touched the grate and wailed because it was hot. Lesson learned the hard way. We don't listen to the Lord, we get burned. We don't listen to the Lord, it's, it's difficult. And so the Lord, in his mercy and grace, teaches us to mind these things. Now these days, in our home, we don't have an open fire at home, but there's still a, a very dangerous power that needs to be treated with utmost respect in the home. I'm not talking about my wife. I'm talking about the power of electricity. Electricity has the power to bless, to warm our homes, to provide light and do all sorts of good things for us, but we have to be careful for it. I have learned not to go poking around the electrical box with a screwdriver. I have learned not to try to rescue a stuck piece of toast in the toaster with a fork without turning off the electricity. I see some people shaking their heads. They've tried to do that. And yes. You see, I have the fear of electricity. This is not an overwhelming fear which causes me to hide in terror every time I go in the kitchen and see the toaster. All right. All right. No. The toaster and I have developed a good relationship. I mind the toaster and the toaster helps me. You see, this is a gentle fear which instructs me to behave myself in relation to electricity and that's called respect. And God is teaching me respect. Respect the things that are dangerous and God is the most dangerous person in the universe. That is why David says in verse 11, he says, come my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Respect, or reverence, which is a very strong form of respect, is owed to God because he is the most powerful person in the universe. He controls all things. He made us. He governs every inch of our life, and he is in control of our destiny. So Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot, be the, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. Now, this is why it says in Proverbs verse, chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I'm glad it doesn't say the fear of the Lord is the fullness of wisdom or the end of wisdom, or the final result of wisdom. No, it's just the beginning. Because the fullness of wisdom is not the fear of the Lord. The fullness of wisdom is the love of the Lord. That's when you're really wise. But you can't even start to get there until you start to fear the Lord and say, he's dangerous. I've got to rightly relate to him. Without this fear of the Lord, we are foolish indeed. We will carelessly disobey God's laws and receive the disastrous consequences. I can hear the rebellious among us say, what kind of a monster God is this that he would intimidate those less powerful than him? Do you call that love? Well, the answer is this. God is not just a God of love. He's a God of holiness. He's a holy God. He'll never change who he is. He will only allow holy people to be with him forever. 
So he is teaching us holiness that we might be able to be with him forever. God is a God of love, and his love provided a way for us to be saved and to be with God. Jesus, the holy Son of God, came to this world to die on the cross to pay for our sins so that we will not have to experience the wrath of God for our sins. If we trust in him, we will be forgiven. He takes our sins and he gives us his righteousness. This is love. And once saved, God's children now learn how to properly relate to him, how to properly fear him, how to obey him. We're learning to be citizens of heaven where our future lies, and this is why we learn the habit of fearing the Lord. It gives us wonderful results. It says in verse 12 to 14 of our, of our uh, text here, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking lies, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. These words are so important that they're repeated by, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the fear of the Lord is still being preached. Same recipe. This is the best way to live, and it is also the blessed way to live. Because it says the eyes of the Lord are upon the, the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the, eye, but the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So learn the habit of the fear of the Lord. Choose to obey and you will be blessed. Now the last habit. And I save the best for last. The last habit is indeed a good one. Learn to trust the promises of God. Look at verse 19 to 22. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Sounds like a promise to me. And God is a God who keeps all his promises. No one will be condemned. What does that mean? Well, remember what Jesus said about fearing God because he's able to, to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the condemnation. It's destruction away from the presence of God. Separation from God forever. It's the final penalty for sin. But here is the promise. For the believer in Jesus, that final judgment by God is taken off the table. It's removed, completely removed. And it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, can we say it together? There is therefore now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Yes, brother and sister, I do need to fear God in my life, but this is something that I must not fear. I must, I must not fear condemnation because God says I've taken it away. Don't fear condemnation. Don't fear standing before one, one day and God, uh, standing before God one day and you hear this terrible news. You didn't do good enough, so you're going to hell. God will never, never tell you that. Why? 
Because you were good? No. Because my Savior's good. My Savior's good. My Savior took all my condemnation, paid all my hell and all the penalty of my sin at the cross so that I could stand before God and be accepted in glory because of the merits of Christ, not on my own merit. Amen? There's a beautiful illustration of this from the passage itself. And uh, it's a metaphor. So we've got to look at it. In verse 20 it says this. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now if you're reading through the passage, that verse doesn't seem to fit. It says in verse 19, A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. So it seems in the, in the reading of the context that somehow the Lord protects us so we never get a broken bone. Well, if you were here last week and you listened to Psalm 51 as Josiah proclaimed it last week, all, uh, right down through the psalm it says, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. He's talking, David's talking as a Christian or, or as a believer in God He's talking of the fact that God crushed his bones. God broke his bones. Why does God do that to his people? Sometimes for the sake of teaching us how to obey him, he breaks our bones. He does it in order to heal us. He does it in order to restore us. But if he does that, then what's this promise all about? He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. That's a conundrum, all right? It's a problem. Where do we get the answer? Well, we get it. We get the answer in the New Testament. In John chapter 19. If you turn to John chapter 19, once again, it's a riddle, it's a metaphor, and we've got to dig a little bit deeper to find the answer. John chapter 19, we get the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and... and uh, in verse 31, it says, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the others. Why would they break their legs? To hasten their demise. All right? a, a person dies... On, the, on a cross when he's crucified, a, a, a person dies because of asphyxiation, because they get too tired to lift themselves up to be able to fill their lungs with air. And they die by asphyxiation. It's a very painful death. They run short of oxygen. And if you break the bones, they can't lift themselves up to get a breath of air, and they die quicker. It's gruesome. That's, that was Roman crucifixion. But he came... Uh, to Jesus, in verse 33, when he came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, he did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Somebody's already dead, the, the sudden flow of blood and water will only come from the heart. Jesus was pierced in his heart, a sure sign that he was dead. Praise the Lord. Jesus died on the cross. He didn't just swoon, as some people believe, was revived in the, in the tomb afterwards and didn't really die. No, Jesus actually died. They put a hole in his heart with a sword. 
and out came blood and water. The man who saw it, says, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies that you may believe. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and another scripture says they will look on him whom they pierced. It says that in Zechariah, they will look on him whom they pierced. So Jesus was pierced. He was pierced with a sword. But it says in Psalm 34, a prophecy concerning Jesus that's inserted right in there in the text. Okay. His bones will be protected. Not a bone of him will be broken. He keeps all his bones. It's talking about Jesus. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? It's a prophecy fulfilled, but does it have any bearing upon us and upon our lives? It has great bearing. And here's why. First mention of bones in the scripture is that when Jesus, when God did some divine surgery on Adam, he took a bone out of Adam, and from that bone, a rib of, bone of Adam, he made the woman, he made Eve. And then, and then uh, Adam turned around and said this, she is now bone of my bones. Bone of my bones. She's a part of me. And that's a wonderful, wonderful picture of marriage, how a man needs to receive his wife as his own body. He receives her as bone of his bones. Now, it says in the New Testament that we are the bride of Christ. And we are his body. And when Jesus looks at his church, he says to his church, you are bone of my bones. And because you are bone of my bones, I'm going to protect you. Not one bone will be broken. Now, we say the body of Christ was broken. Really, we shouldn't really say that. I know it's in hymnology. We sang it this morning. I thought to myself, well, sometimes hymns don't get it all right. All right. Jesus' bones were not broken. He was battered. He was bruised. He was pierced. He was, he was horribly treated, but not one bone was broken. Why? Because it's a picture. It's a picture how Jesus, how Jesus takes care of his bride. We are his body, and he's going to make sure that his body is never broken. That means this. Not one, not one of you who are the bones of Christ will be lost. Not one. That's why it's in the context of, of, of John 34. You will not be condemned. You won't be broken off. Nothing will, be separ nothing will cause you to be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you're bone of his bones. He takes care of his bones. God made sure that soldier didn't break Jesus' bones because, you see, the picture would have been destroyed. Jesus, Jesus survived intact. His body is intact. And when he rose from the dead, he didn't have to recover from a broken leg. It was intact. And so when the church gets to heaven, all the children of God are going to be there intact. Nobody will be condemned. Nobody cut off. Can I hear an amen? amen. We are bone of his bones. We're part of him. He cannot deny himself. We belong to him. We're just that precious to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Oh, near, so very near to God, nearer I cannot be, 
for in the person of his son, I am as near as he. Jesus is received in heaven on the merits of his grace, on the merits of his great work. We are received in heaven because we are in Christ. We will never be separated. We are bone of his bones. Praise the Lord. So, trust the promise. So let's go over them, you see? First one, praise the Lord. Second one, call on the Lord. Third one, fear the Lord. Fourth one, trust his promise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we might make these our, our habits for the coming year, Lord, that, that we might practice these good and godly habits, make them so constant in our lives that, that we are constantly praising, constantly worshiping, constantly calling on the Lord, uh, constantly fearing God, uh, constantly trusting your great promise of no separation, no condemnation. We pray your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.